Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Andrew Bartram, Eric Mathy and Jim Fitzgerald. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Hello, Eric. I don't know how to answer after Andrew's hello. I feel like I should sing it. Hello. <laughs> and hello, Jim. Hello, everybody. It's great to have you with us, Jim. Right. Um, first thing, uh, before we get going, I just wish to thank Wayne Martin Belger uh, for being with us in the last show. It was absolutely fantastic chat. So uh, thank you very, very much, Wayne. Um, really appreciate you uh, coming on. And uh, with that, I think we'll do like we usually do and head over to Fenland, England. So, uh, Andrew, what have you been up to? Um bought a lens in fact i bought two lenses so i was very interested to hear about eric's mounting techniques <laughs> for lenses so to be clear. you'll remember um see i'm we're on video so for those who can see me which is just you three guys i bought this beast a while back which is an indastar 300 mil which i need to build a camera for it uh so i, was, I then went out after we chatted with guy bellingham on the show and I make some lovely portraits using the Indostar 51, which oh, yeah. came, you see. Which I just saw has got a couple of smudges of fungi growing on the back. But I can just take that rear element out, I think, by the looks of it, and clean yeah, that, probably. or I won't worry too much. That's so cool. I think that's going to be okay. That's 60mm thread, so I've got this wooden lens board, and I was just going to get one of those big round drilly things, you know, for cull cutter. That's the word. And just try and shove that bad boy in there. So I don't know whether it'll whether the lens whether the thread will just bite into the wood or I need to put something on the back to hold it in. It'll bite. Cut the what do you under- do, Jim? Well, I'd cut the hole undersized just a little bit if you can, and then you'll be able to you'll be able to screw it in. Yeah. yeah. And it should it should hold tight enough. You got to make sure the lens board's thick enough to. Yeah, I might have to reinforce it because the. Once you get past the thread, you've got a, an unthreaded bit, which is not much smaller than the width of the lens board. So I might have to reinforce the middle bit yeah. with another piece of wood. Lens board so it has something to grab onto. Yeah. yeah. Or uh, grab um, a hose clamp that's large enough. And once it gets yeah. through there, put the hose clamp on the back. As long as there's a front flange, you're good to go. Yeah, there is a front flange. Yeah. Okay. And then I've got this uh, projector lens that you put me onto. I think I've, <laughs> Simon or, or Eric, I'm not sure. So I've got this, um, forgive my, I never know how to pronounce it. Well, how do you pronounce when you, when you say L-E-I-T-Z? Is it lights or leets? Or? I, I go with lights. 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 Vetsar Elmeron F3.6 200mm thing. That's I think it, my baby. I think it's metal. I know you thought it was plastic body, but I think it's black metal. So I haven't got it yet. It's been posted. Um, I'm not sure how long it is. Do I, Is this something I'm going to have to cut down? No. <laughs> Well, it's it's it depends on what you're going to get because uh, I, I mean I did, we talked about this particular one, but you've you got it for a bargain as well, which is which twenty is quid. It was exactly. Yeah. Oh damn! Yeah, and I can't remember. It's not that big, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't remember if it was um, with a focusing sleeve or whether it was just a pure lens. Um, no, it's just, yeah, no, it's just a pure it, lens. I think. Yeah, it's 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 not that big, and isn't it? No, um, and it's not too heavy as well, which is which is one of the the great things about these 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 lenses. I mean, you, you know, lots of people aspire to having an Aero Ektar, 
uh, and then shoot it wide open at you know, 178 millimeter or is it 173 178 millimeter 2.5 uh, but 200 3.6 is still you know it's not that far off uh, relatively speaking um, but the weight of that lens it's it, you know it's a really chunky lens uh, whereas you you put one of these in large in larger lenses or not large lenses uh, projection lenses uh, like that lights and it's just so much handier um, if you're shooting like a yeah. speed graphic or something like that it's you know it's 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 portable in a, in a way that is just difficult with such a uh, one of the heavy lenses yeah right. they have a really really pretty bokeh very very pretty bokeh it's, it's you'll like it well, if you have deep pockets, find yourself a nine-inch Spencer Portland. Ooh, making news now. now. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim, Simon is our sort of lens guy because he's he's in another podcast um, which is all about lenses. Yeah, and I, I, I think um, Eric is also uh, <laughs> a lens person in a big way. He is. As well, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I keep forgetting about Eric because I'm not used to him being here. Sorry, Eric. I'm, I'm easy to forget. It's fine. It's on the type of lens, it's actually a, a Carl Struss, a nine-inch Struss, and you'll nice. be a happy camper for four by five. Ooh, all right. Notes. I'm not making notes. Either. Yeah. What was the first one you mentioned, Jim? Well, Spencer Portland. Uh, they don't. I, I've got a 15-inch Spencer Portland, which is a, a, a portrait lens and landscape lens, um, and it's amazing quite a few of the images on my website the soft focus works done with that that lens um, I, I noticed your soft focus and it was and you mentioned that word beginning with p pictorial pictorial and uh, there's there's an online publication in the uk called on landscape and former guest on the show andrew sanderson who's a uh, renowned printer andrew's not been on the show yet Oh, isn't he? Oh, he must yeah. be on another podcast. He's on. An, he was on. He was on another podcast. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Andrew wrote an article for on landscape, all about pictorialism and yeah. how it kind of the word gets a bad rap, and arguing how it's uh, very much a function of pretty much everything we do in photography, particularly landscape. But it's a really interesting article, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You you can read it for free. On landscape is a subscription online magazine, but they have lots of articles that are free. But you do have to create an account. So I noticed, Jim, your soft focus pictures. And then I was, uh, I'd also come across recently, I don't know if you've seen, any of you seen the soft focus lens that you can get for the uh, Mamiya RB67, which has these three diffuser discs that you can put in. Or you can just shoot it wide open at F4 and it has a soft effect as well. Once you stop it down to about F8, it becomes a normal sort of lens, inverted commas, you know, for sharpness. Any of you aware of the Mamiya SF lens? I've, I've heard of it, um, mm. but it's, it's nope. not one I've uh, come across. No, I hadn't come across it. The, you see them occasionally on eBay, but they're not from Japanese sellers. But they don't normally come with the discs, you see. You've got to watch that. But you can I use it wide open. But have a Mamiya lens for 645. It's a 145 uh, soft focus, but there's no discs for it. Okay. And it's actually the only lens for my 120 system but it's a beautiful lens shot wide open mm. but i haven't heard of anything with the discs that's yep. that's interesting yeah. i'm sorry Which 120 system do you have no 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 who are you talking so to we- eric <laughs> <laughs> the only thing about these online things is it's really easy to accidentally like most of the systems don't let two people talk at once so it's just like 
well, cut off central sometime. If we if we're gonna have videos on all the time, we can just have like everyone holds up a ball when they want to talk or something. You see, a stress ball. <laughs> I have the canister. No. Um, Who were you? You were asking a question as to what one twenty system someone had. Yeah, Jim. I was wondering because he's uh, making his own beasts. I was curious what uh, what one twenty system somebody who shoots really really big negatives. Uh, what one twenty? What sort of one twenty system would 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 you work with or settle I on? Still have my uh, Mamiya six four five one thousand S. Ooh. Um. That and that that's it. I had another six four five system. I sold. Um. I still got. Uh, well, actually, my son's got my Canon F1 that I've had since the 70s. But uh, that's that's the only medium format camera I have left. I decided I'd keep that. Um, and, you know, I may, I may start using that again. And uh, so that's kind of in the back of my head. But that's the only thing I have, and everything else is 8 by 10 and up. Like I like how you just skip the four or five. Like eh, well, whatever. Eight, eight by ten is my new point and shoot. <laughs> it, it, it seriously is because when you move down from from say fourteen seventeen, mm-hmm. to eight, you pick that thing up and it's like, okay, let's put this on a tripod and rock. It, it's really fast. Well, there are actually some people making you know the the cone based. Uh, point and shoot large formats. You know, you see them with a four by five and that sort of stuff. Starting with the travel right. wide, but I've seen some of those that are made with an eight by ten, where it's just like a giant cone for a single lens, and just it's like a giant. It's sort of like when people use an iPad to take tourist photos, and they hold this giant oh. sort of right in front of them. Like it's the same thing, but with an eight by ten, it's like a giant. You, you must have to shoot like one one thousand of a second to not get any camera any camera shake on it because it's so huge, but. You could theoretically run around and use that as a point and shoot. Absolutely. You know, why not? Simon, you've been doing things with lenses, haven't you? On your large format camera? Yeah. Um, well, there was, uh, it's like part, part two where I was talking about uh, last time um, because I think uh, I was t- chatting about um, using a 6x6 Russian lens on, on my. Uh, MPP Micropress um, but I, I did something else um, that week as well and that was I finally got round to mounting a Mamiya press lens uh, onto my Meridian uh, 4x5 camera and I uh, made, a, made a lens board with a bayonet in, in the lens board so it can, you can just, just pop the thing on um, and in, in the hope that he would have a chance of uh, covering most of four by five, which uh, ultimately doesn't. I mean, there's a there's something of a vignette um, there. So it's I'm not entirely sure if it's actually meant to even cover six by nine, um, because I mean the the Mamiya press lenses can go up to six by nine uh, with a uh, just a com- with a with a conventional back, um, but I think the one is actually meant more for the six by seven. I think, um, but I thought well. I've got it, and it's meant to be an absolutely incredible lens, so I, g- I gave it a go, and it didn't disappoint. Um, what I didn't find out was just how much it was vignetting there, because I actually took some photographs at the, the Six Towns uh, Darkroom Club, where, where there's a, a studio there, but there's a, there's a black wall 
that you can take um, a photogra- photographs of people against. And of course, the way that I actually lit it, I only was actually lighting the, the face and torso. So when the actual photographs were developed, all the edges were black anyway. Um, so you, you couldn't tell uh, what the vignette if was or how bad it was going to be. But I was, I was really pleased with the actual shots, though. Um, because you know, 100 mil on on four x five is a pretty wide lens. Uh, so yeah, it's a pretty right. wide angle of view. Um, but also shooting at 2.8 on with on four x five as well. You, it's got that that really nice uh, shallow depth of field as well. But what I what I particularly enjoyed though was just looking through the ground glass at um, at the subjects uh, that, that I was taking. And it was just one of those moments when you, know, you get, you get a, a lens that's a little bit special and you look through it for the first time and it just brings a smile to your face, you know, whether that be because it's like super sharp or it's got some kind of character mm-hmm. uh, in there that just excites you. Um, and in this case, it was razor sharp, um, but with that, that lovely um, shallow uh, depth of field as well. So I just I really, really enjoyed uh, shooting with it. You, but you don't get excited by sharpness, do you? I've heard you talk about this elsewhere. And um, I don't know whether you were playing devil's advocate. It was, I think, when Mike Gutterman was on your other show and he was um, trying to defend Pentax. something, a Pentax yeah. lens or something, and saying how yeah. super sharp they were. And you kind of yawned. Well, <laughs> yeah. you may not have yawned, but you might well have done. Yeah. And said, well, we're not really interested in that. We're interested more in the character of a lens, whatever that is. So. Yeah. So I don't know what I don't really know what you mean by character of a lens, other than shooting it wide open and see yeah, what it looks like. It's it's pretty much whatever I say to win an argument. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, no, it's it's just some some yeah. lenses, whether they are particularly sharp or whether they're soft or they've, they've got something strange going on in the outer focus areas. You know, mm. it, I think we we can all connect uh, with with a with a particular lens, and sometimes yes, I'm, I'm not of. I'm not obsessed uh, with with sharpness. I, I I value generally character higher uh, than, than 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 sharpness. But sharpness has a place, and uh, and and it's especially if you've got things like micro contra- micro contrast going on, uh, where it it allows you to really pick a subject out um, from whatever's going on in the background. Um, and that lens was something that absolutely could do that. And you you don't generally see that kind of uh, micro contrast, all that kind of um, separation uh, between what's sharp and what's out, out of focus, with a, a relatively wide angle of view. Um, so it, I think it's just like the novelty of seeing a, a relatively wide shot with that kind of separation, and uh, so that in itself was 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 just making me smile. Jim, do you have lenses that um, you're drawn to because of their character? Oh, absolutely! I've been collecting lenses for years. Um, one of one of my favorite well i i've kind of i carry two lenses in my eight by ten kit um one of them is the uh, cook triple convertible so that's that's sharpness okay you want sharpness and i've got three focal lengths i mean three twelve uh a nineteen inch and a twenty five and a half inch components in one lens in a shutter so hang on, so, let me, I've got to stop you there. So I, when I wrote it down, a Cook triple convertible, that seemed to be like the hatchback of, of not hatchback, <laughs> convertible. So you press a button and the and the and the you swap the, the you swap out, swap out the lens the lens components, and yeah. you, you created a, a different focal length. 
by mm-hmm. using one com- two components. So it's made by Cook Optics in England. Yep. It's the finest lenses you can buy. Yeah. So I have three focal lengths, so I can use it on 8x10, I can use it on 8x20, and I can use it on 14x17 by just using different components. So it's a very versatile lens. What and vintage I, is yours? Can I ask what what I year bought, is that one? I bought it like two years ago. It's oh, brand new. Okay, so on the new ones. One, Got yeah. it. So, so the ticket there is, is you buy the barrel and then you find a inexpensive Copal three shutter in a in a lens online. Buy that for a couple hundred bucks, two hundred fifty bucks, and then have uh, I had SK Grimes here in the United States mount it for me, and they do the aperture um, markings and everything for you as well, and that way you save yourself about a thousand bucks because you can get a Copal three from from Cook, but they charge you fifteen hundred dollars for it. Yeah, for a so that's a secret, but it's uh, you know I decided to go that route because of the focal the the formats that I shoot, and I wanted to have a lens that was going to give me sharp images when I was seeing sharp. So the other lens and one of my favorite lenses in that kit for eight by ten is in a weighs about six ounces, and it's in a compure shutter. It's uh, actually a one a hundred and fifty millimeter Hermagius uh, uh, ideoscope. Okay, but it's only half the lens. It's only the it's the front half of the lens and it's rear mounted behind the shutter. It's about 285, 290 millimeters. And instead of F4.5, it's F9. And I shoot that thing at about maybe F10. And it's it's a lens that's just uh, amazing. You want to talk about bokeh and and the glowing highlights and the stuff that you can get with that lens it's just it's just amazing and it's in a little shutter that it doesn't weigh anything wait could you repeat what it was it ideoscope ideoscope or magic ID. spell that for me my friend because i'm fascinated e-r-m-a-g-i-s-e-i-d-e-i-d uh ideoscope uh, e i d o s c o p e. Okay. Oh, great lenses! I've I've got, I've got that one. I've got a. I've had several of them. They make them all the way up from about that size. I think that size is considered a number four, a number five, all the way up to a number one, which is a nineteen inch. And I've got a nineteen inch that I use on my studio camera, and that's an f f four five nineteen inch, and it's beautiful. Okay. The imagery from that lens is just incredible, but it's a huge lens. I mean, it's it weighs probably maybe three or four kilograms. Okay, and it's it's like you know uh, probably close to eight nine inches tall. So it's definitely a studio camera lens, but it's absolutely beautiful. And they have one even longer than that, a zero, I think, is a twenty-one inch, but. Rarely do you see those, but they're really gorgeous lenses. They have just a real unique softness to them that I absolutely, absolutely love. And then I'll also take my 15-inch Spencer Portland, which is in a barrel, and I shoot that. Uh, that's an f/5 lens. I shoot that about just about f/6. You know, just just close it down just a little bit, and it's. It's another lens that's just magnificent in the way it renders uh, highlights. I shoot a lot of backlight, backlit images with that lens, and it just it just glow. Nice. 
are they the one is that the is that the lens you'd be using on on your website jim where you've got a, a number of soft focus images or are they made with a different lens yeah that that uh, those two lenses and i had I, I sold the lens here a while ago but i had a, a 305 kodak portrait lens and that's that's a that's a wonderful wonderful lens i've got a couple images on the website that are shot with that lens that um it just has a, a, a character uh, to it that's just really, really amazing. So each lens has got its own unique characteristic, and you find the sweet spot where to shoot it, and the aperture just stays there. I never move it. But you know what, it, what the look's going to be and what you're going to get with it and the contrast that you're going to get with it. And, you know, some of the old glasses, you know, a little low in contrast, but then you just work with that in the light that you're shooting it. And I so, shoot a lot, so it gives you that contrast you're looking for. So do you choose, like when you go out into the field, because obviously you have a lot of lenses and a lot of, a lot of cameras, do you pre-choose like the lens camera combination depending on, for like a particular project? So like, okay, I'm shooting a project on the soft focus or on panoramics or, or what have you. Um, you got with a specific lens and uh, camera combo in mind or you just sort of bring the kitchen sink and, and it depends on what it is that you see it depends on the length of the trip if I'm going out on on several week trip mm-hmm. yeah the kitchen sink will come with me you know I, I wish I, I mean I keep the big studio camera lenses at home because they're just they're just you can't use them out in the field they're too big too heavy right. but I've, I've I have eliminated several lenses for my collection and sold off a lot of stuff, which was very painful because there were some lenses that I just, I, I just had a hard time letting go because they were so wonderful. But I had duplicate focal lengths, so it was kind of like, which one do I like better? Which one's more logical to take out in the field due to weight? And the look that I get is very similar, so I had to make some hard decisions. I sold off some really beautiful lenses. Uh, over the last few years and kind of refined my collection down to some favorites that I like to go out with and uh, and then I'll swap some out from time to time depending on I, I go from when out in the field with no idea how I'm going to interpret what I want to shoot so I'll have a sharp lens and I'll have a soft lens and a lot of times I just gravitate towards the soft lenses they just seem to touch my heart better than the sharp stuff does but right. uh, I'll have that mainly for the two large, or A10 and the 1417. The 8x20, generally everything that I do there, everything that I've seen in every, when I go out, everything I see is sharp. So I've got a three lens kit that I take out with, with that system when I go out. And that's always in the bag. I, I haven't changed anything. I haven't just been able to really see anything soft in, in that panoramic format. You just oh, okay. you, you've just reminded me there as well, uh, mentioning Cook that uh, I've also uh, got a Cook twenty inch um, uh, four point five, uh, which is uh, aero lens. Uh, that oh, I bought. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I, actually, I actually thought it was an Aeroector uh, when I bought it at auction, and uh, because I just bought it blind, um, I just saw the back of it and I thought, oh, that's an Aeroector, and I picked it up and thought, oh, that's not an Aeroector, uh, and it's enormous, uh, but it looks fantastic. It only only stops down to F six. No, oh, doesn't even stop down to F sixteen. I think it goes to F eleven. I think. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's F eleven. So. That, that, I want to talk about Cook here real quick. I'll give you a story. I have a friend of mine who had the only Cook lens that was ever made, which was a 27-inch 4.5 Cook portrait lens. Why? It was it was manufactured for a friend of Edward Weston. I forget the guy's name. The only lens that Cook ever made in that focal length. Um, he bought it from a uh, portrait photographer down in uh, Southern California and had it for a number of years. The lens weighed 45 pounds. Yeah. You said 27 inch? 27 inch. That's like four five, you know, cook with the soft focus ring. Yeah. Oh yeah. It it was it was massive. What the but, hell do you mount that to? Well you have to you have to support it. It was on uh, I've got a Century 8A studio camera, eleven by fourteen. And my friend has one as well. And my friend's name's Tree Tran. And Tree had this lens and had to make a special adapter and reinforce the front standard because of the weight. But he did my portrait with that lens. And it's, do you talk about, Cook has, Cook has a creamy look to it that's just unique to Cook lenses. And this lens is just, just magnificent. Now, he sold it a few years ago to a famous photographer in Paris, I forget his name, and the, the gentleman died here not too long ago, tragically, and uh, I think I think Tree was contacted about maybe purchasing the lens back, but he sold it for an enormous amount of money at the time. The only, uh, only one of its kind, with, with all of the documentation from Cook, when wow. they built it back in the 30s. So it had provenance. Do you think... Um you referred to a creamy look, you know, it's, so that's just a, I can kind of, I have a mental image that comes to mind when you say that. But is in your experience, is that even with a modern Cook lens, are they, are they somehow, well, however the history they've got of making decent optics, um, is, that a, is that a consistent look, do you think, through the years with Cook? Consistent look in their soft focus lenses. Okay. It seems to be, I've had a couple of other Cook soft focus lenses that regrettably I sold. Mm -hmm. I had an 18 inch, 18 inch Cook knuckler that was just, had that beautiful, it just, Cook has a, has a look and, and everybody knows the Cook look. When you see it, you can pretty much say that's a Cook shot with a Cook. It's got a unique character to it. And, um, and you know, Cook's got a PS nine forty five soft focus lens. It's a new lens. It's designed for four by five, but believe it or not, the thing covers eight by ten. So, in case anybody's wondering about that, it does cover eight by ten as well, even though it's marketed as a four by five only lens. Uh, but it's it's a it's their new soft. It's a new soft focus lens, and it it has a it has a creamy look as well. So it's something that they do with their glass and their optic design that gives you that special look. 
a, a former large format shooter that I know, um, I say former, but she's pretty much completely moved away uh, from from film and gone gone digital. Uh, Isabel Kuadez. Sad, sad. Um, and uh, she um, she has one of those lenses, and it's interesting. She sold pretty much all of her uh, film equipment, but she kept that lens. Uh, and having seen what she did with it. It's hardly surprising, even though she doesn't really have the means to actually use it. She she couldn't part herself from from that lens. Oh, it's an incredible lens. Yeah, it's you know, cook cook lenses are just are just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, one one more thing from me before I head over to well before we head over to Eric, um, and that's I had a chat with um, Steve Lloyd earlier on today, who's making me a uh, a carbon chroma camera. And um, I'm just having a little bit of an update today. And that's to say that my bellows are ready. Um, because we were having a little chat about bellows before we actually started recording. Um, and this sort of just reminded me of it. But uh, I've, I have some custom bellows for, for the camera that's got a, uh, a custom print on it as well. So, um, which <laughs> did, you get the, did you get the jolly flag of England? <laughs> no, like, you know, no. the Jamaican flag? Like, what? what? <laughs> you know, what, what, what do you like a custom bellows this has got like your favorite you know group on it like what, it, what is it, can, it can have so many things and I, I'm, I'm immediately right. i'm immediately regretting saying it now because i'm thinking too late now there could, pal there could have been so many things that i've picked and you know, and I, I was thinking yeah that's cool i really like that and then and then you just come out with something like that i'm thinking oh man that was lame <laughs> okay jim what do you think so what is it bellows? what's that what do you think is on his custom bellows, Jim? We I think picture Bean. Oh, wouldn't it be fun? Why don't you? You could have like a naked man. Now, just bear with me here. <laughs> and, right. And so, as you extend the bellows, oh, no. yeah, oh, no. you with it? <laughs> Eric's with on the Eric's. On his the arm gets longer. You shake your hand. Yeah. Work. Yeah, we, we, you're just gonna have to wait, and you're just gonna have to wait and put that tape measure away, Eric. Um, <laughs> we, we're gonna have to just wait and see. Um, so, uh, oh, sorry, go on, go on, Jim. I said I can't wait to see it. Hopefully, yeah. you, hopefully it's, it's multicolor. It, it's going to be a complete disappointment for everybody now. Um, but, the, but, the, but never mind. It's uh, I, I like the idea. When you it know what it'll be it. like? There's like there's a there was a fashion in the seventies for weird green bathtubs and things, you know, and <laughs> and everyone thought it was just really cool to have those things. And then twenty years down the road, you think, why didn't I just go for a classic timeless look? Yeah, avocado. That was the color. Avocado, yeah. yeah. Avocado. It. Yeah. Or peach. Yeah. Peach was yeah. another one there back in the day. My dad still has a peach bathroom suite. Yeah, we had we had we oh, had God. peach when we moved into this house. It's just some old couple had put it in. Hmm. What was that, Jim? I think they even made shag carpet that color as well. Yeah, they did. Yeah. <laughs> I just like the term sh- of course I do. Shag carpet. Like it's just yeah. Well, on, on on that note, we'll we'll move away from my custom bellows that are now going to oh, be a disappointment to everybody for long, when my they friends. see it. That's um, where all the emails are going to be directed towards. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eric, what, what, what have you been up to? Uh, besides obsessively like refreshing the news feed here in America to see what the hell's going to happen. Um, what is going on? Well, uh, my fiance and I closed on a house, which means sometime in the next couple of months I'll get to actually build a dark room, which I'm very excited for. Mm-hmm. Um, which means I'll be able to like take a crack at making my own 
sheet film and doing uh, gun oil prints and all the things that I can't really do now. So that's exciting. Um, I got two of my my babies back to my favorite cameras. Um, good old Pentacon sixes back from getting CLA'd. Um, and this one got re- mine died uh, this week. Oh, dude. That's a shame. I love this is the one I actually got in Berlin. Um, so my buddy Kelly Shane Fuller, who is the gentleman up in Oregon who recreated, uh, reverse engineered how to develop Kodachrome film, amongst other things. Like he can actually rel- reliably develop Kodachrome, the lost art. Yeah. Um, he's just a complete mad scientist. He also uh, repairs and services cameras. So he did a full CLA on two of my, my two, two of my three Pentacons. Um, because I, I love these cameras. They're I've shocking. Often, I've often looked at. I do look at them, and Simon puts me off saying he's never had one that worked properly. <laughs> so, but I, there's there's a number of derivatives of those sort of things. There's other ones with different names, aren't there? And I'm so confused by them. Yeah, yeah. The the, there's some others. No, there's some others. Well, keep going. Uh, well, Kiev Six is the factory, the Arsenal factory, and then which I think closed down. And then there's two companies. One in. Uh, Yugoslavia, the, who essentially take those and they rebuild them from scratch to get rid of all the weak parts, right? Because these funky East German Russian things have a lot of really quirky things to them and weak spots. So Arai, I think, is one, A-R-A-I. And then there's a second company. They take them, strip them down, rebuild them, replace the really janky, crappy parts uh, with other better parts, and then sell them with like a one-year warranty. Um they have the clone, essentially this thing, which is a Pentax. Let's admit it's just a Pentax SLR, the new format clone. Um, and then they also have a uh, Hasselblad clone that they that they made. And so these two companies remanufacture them and put them back together, essentially. But for like for how um, there's, there's the thing I love about these things, I'll put it up next to the mic, is they're shockingly quiet. Like most of the medium formats are this size. You know, you fire them off, and it sounds like. A, a drawbridge dropping, you know, and these things are just mm-hmm. incredibly quiet for a, for a medium format camera. Um, I love these things and they work really, really well with my handmade lenses. So that's just a, I'm stoked and for that. Who was your friend who does the CLA and the Kodachrome? Uh, Kelly, Kelly Shane Fuller. He's up in Portland. Oh yeah. City, we've, Oregon. We've, we've referenced him before, haven't we? Oh yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He is a mad scientist. Um, and then I went out last weekend to shoot month number two of my burn, uh, project. So we had, for those of you who don't know what that is, we had a lot of fires here. We we now always have a lot of fires here in California, the fire season. Um, and this year the fires came quite close to the Bay area, like, uh, parts of the Bay area proper were evacuated. Um, so I'm going out every month for a year to a particular section of the burn zone that came really close to Fremont. And I'm shooting the same scenes over and over and over again, the exact same shot as close as I can to kind of track how um, Mother Nature recovers from a wildfire. Because there's all this this panic about it for good reason. Um, But also a sense of loss, right? Like these, these areas are burned and they'll never come back. But in reality, the only real loss out there was like park service buildings, right? Whereas the redwoods and the trees seem to be recovering quite fine on their own. This is what they're sort of made to do. This is nature. Uh, so 
yeah, I went out and shot round two of that last weekend. And now I have four more weeks until I shoot round three. What lenses are you, lens or lenses are you using for, for that? I'm using that one. I'm using a, uh, an 1800s design landscape lens that I built myself. So, I mean, Jim, you play with a lot of old lenses, so you probably know all these designs. And the, when photography first was created, there were like two actual uh, upwards of four, but lens designs. And the very first one was just the landscape lens, which is just usually like a single, yep, single element with the aperture in the front. Um, so they're really easy to build on your own. And I was incredibly skeptical. I'm like, how really like it's just an aperture on the front and that's and one piece of glass and that actually produces these like sharp images this is what like brady used in the civil war um there's no way i I can't imagine it it's sharp as hell i mean you have to shoot f16 or f32 you you know wide open it's it's uh it's still pretty interesting wide open but pretty much um, Yeah, but any I suppose the thing I mean, what heck, what do I know? But you've got a single lens, like you're talking about. And as long as it's a nice piece of glass, mm-hmm. once you get down to that middle bit, then you're going to get this sharp projection. When you get more modern lenses, when they started adding other bits and making compound lenses and different elements, right? That was to create even fields of play, you know, even playing across the image at wide apertures and trying to keep the stopping all those various aberrations and lens distortions mm-hmm. but in it's pure simplest form a single um single element like that shooting sort of through the middle ish yeah of course it's going to be yeah. sharp like well common sense would think it is well it's and clearly, actually clear, uh, wide open actually has better bokeh than the pestle clone that i made yeah you know i made a, a pestle clone ish but it's actually that's the other lens I have that I've made recently and wide open. It's actually really nice. It doesn't have very much diffraction at all, but that landscape lens wide open, it's, well, it's actually kind of attractive. It's really nice. Well, that's, that was the, I mean, we have talked about this on, uh, before because uh, famously I sent one to Andrew uh, to use, but so I've got a, um, a half plate camera and it came with uh, a cook triplet and uh, a rapid view. And the the rapid view is uh, is a single element meniscus lens with a screw on front with the with the aperture, um, but mm-hmm. I've read that uh, and that makes it like an f twelve point five or something like that. Um, but you you te- you won't screw the uh, the front part of it, so you just you just have the uh, the meniscus uh, wide open and all the light can hit it from uh, all the angles. Um, and I think that's effectively like an f six or six point five or some, something in that kind of region. And that's what. Um, uh, is it uh, Sieg, Sieglitz? Um, Sieg, I can't Alfred. Remember. Yeah, Alfred, him. <laughs> Alfred, Alfred, yeah. And uh, he was oh, he was using, I believe, that lens. Um, as, as, and that was all part of the uh, pictorialist uh, movement, I believe. Right. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, I have... Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, was, I was just going to ask Jim if he if he had um, any, any insight on that. Well, the, a, a lot of the, the pictorialist style imagery that was, was done to my understanding and what little I've read on it is, uh, the, you know, like the lenses that you just talked about there, they were under development. A lot of petzels were, were being used for, for the soft focus uh, effect. 
and uh, I, I earlier had earlier had had spoken about Carl Struss. Mm -hmm. Well, Carl Struss was actually a cinematographer, and uh, he developed his own soft focus lenses because he wanted he wanted something you know different. Uh, and God, I forget the movie. There's there's a movie because he shot a, he shot he was the cinematographer on several films, and I'll have to find the link for this movie, and I'll I'll send it to you guys later. Ben Hur. No, no, this was uh, Deep Throat. Stop it. <laughs> no, deep foot. Um, <laughs> no, uh, no, seriously, it was, it, was, it was a heartbreaking movie, but I think it was a silent film. Okay. But the, the, the shots and, and the cinematography in this, is, you know, naturally black and white, was just incredible. And, and Stress was the cinematographer, and he used his lenses on, on this, and... It's just amazing, but he developed his own lenses and was a still photographer as well. And a lot of the pictorialists were either either using a stress lens or Pinkham and Smith was another manufacturer that was that was quite popular back in the oh in the early nineteen hundreds, nineteen tens, nineteen twenties. And and those lenses today are quite expensive to, to try to it. find. You know, Pinkham and Smith is expensive. If you find a stress, it's just it's just crazy expensive. But so we've taken it one step further. You talk about a soft focus lens. A friend of mine that I was talking about earlier, Tree Tran, he's an optician. Well, Tree developed his own set of soft focus lenses mm -hmm. that are current that are new. And how it is briefly is basically he, he owns four Carl Stress lenses. So he has the benchmark to test against. And he developed a lens that goes into, um, in fact, I, I, I own one. Uh, it goes into a, an aluminum barrel. Yeah. And you screw in different components. And so you can have either a 9-inch, a 12-inch, 14 inch, 16 inch, I forget what the focal length ranges are. You change the focal length of the lens by changing the element. It's a meniscus that screws into the back and it's okay. in its own optical housing. So I have I have a set of lenses that uh, that screw in uh, it's an 18 inch and a 24 inch, I think. So it's essentially like the like the like I was interesting um you talked about the 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 cook convertible. In my mind, immediately went because I don't really keep track of new lenses. Um, we'll wait for him to come back. It's going to he's going to bring it. Yeah, blue break. Uh, no, he's grabbing the lens. I hope. I know. <laughs> I can't wait. While he's and, uh, and, and, and not a cup to. Sorry, carry on. No, no. Carl Struss. Was Jim saying? Did Carl actually make his own lenses in as a cinematographer? Yeah. Yeah, I just googled him, and it's amazing what you learn on this show, isn't it? So he was—you you mentioned the sign of the cross, apparently. Ben Hur, yeah, his okay. is ridiculous. The story of Temple Drake. Don't know what that's all about. The Alligator People. Wow. Okay. Limelight. There you go. So that's Charlie Chaplin, isn't it? I know that one. The Great Dictator. Uh, did he do that as well? Yeah. What else? There's some Skippy. May West. 
Every day is a holiday. Oh no, that was that wasn't May West, was it? That was that guy with the big nose. The, May West. Uh, the Taming of the Shrew. Yeah. With an aperture. Oh, hey, there we go. That's a beast. So, is it a single element or is there multiple elements? No, single elements. Okay, that makes sense then. All right. I was gonna say because when you mentioned the cook that you had that was convertible, um, I didn't know cook. I'm lame. I didn't know Cook was still making large format lenses, but some of the original lenses from those 1800s designs, because I looked at them, were also convertible. Um, but back then, they weren't considered to be as sharp as the fixed ones, so they fell out of popularity fairly quickly. Um, People can't see this, but basically the, the rear um, lens housing unscrews. Okay. And the aluminum barrel, this is all turned out of one piece. This is, it's amazing, the workmanship. And it has an aperture in it. And so the, the, the lens housing is this right here. So this, this is actually uh, an 18-inch F7.5 wide open. Okay. Because now if you were going to go to, say, a, a 4.5 lens, the diameter of the lens has got to be huge for that focal length. So right. optically designing something like that is is difficult he's working on finding a way to make a larger diameter faster lens because that's what everybody says oh it's too slow okay so i have this so you basically have one barrel mm -hmm. give you about nine different focal lengths with just one barrel so you just screw this in and now you've got i've got an 18 inch f75 and the next one i have uh, let me take it out of its bag since that fell on the floor, but I, I haven't used it for a while. I forget what the focal length of this one is, but I use this for my 1417. And this focal length is, uh, it's a 28 inch F12. Nice. So oh. I, you, all you do is you take out this component and put in another mm -hmm. component in its own optical housing. And you've got different focal lengths that start at nine inches all the way up. And it was designed around Carl Struss, the look of Carl Struss's lens wide open. And the great thing is with the aperture in here, you can, I've shot this thing stop down. Mm -hmm. and it's sharp as all get out. You just have to calculate your own f-stops because otherwise you'd need nine different f-stops on here to, you know, use the right thing. So it's just got Roman numerals on it, but uh, it's it's a lens. It's it's still, you know, Tree makes them to order now. Cool. You're not, you know, but, uh, I mean the craftsmanship is impeccable. The 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 guy who does all of the lens housing and everything, this is not CNC. This is all done by hand. Wow. The threading, everything is by hand. It's on a, on a lathe. It's all out of a single piece of aluminum, and it's not. The tolerances are unbelievable. He, uh, the guy in Vietnam who makes these barrels, uh, he does all of the custom work for Leica, for any of the camera ma manufacturers where they need custom machining and parts for their cameras that they sell. He does all of their work. And, and this work, it's just some of the finest machining I've ever seen in my life. So, uh, so, so it's new stuff that's out there that's still being done. That, so that lens, just let me just check my understanding. That was directly influenced by the sort of lens that Carl Struss used in his cinematography. Is that is that right? 
Yeah. And Carl yeah. made his own lenses yep. or had them made for him? He, he was he was a lens designer. Okay. So, you know, you go back into that, and that's like around 1910, early 1900s. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you go back earlier than that, a, a lot of the, a, a lot of the um, photographers back then uh, were in the, in the Clarence White School of Photography back in, I think, New York and Maine at the time. And they all, they all studied, and so they all were using similar equipment mm-hmm. and similar lenses. Like, you know, we talk about that kind of crap here today. It's like, oh, what about this and what about that? And that's, you know, what they did, did back then. So there's more people that know a lot more about it than I do, but that's just kind of a, some of the stuff that I've gleaned from my reading over the years. Well, it's interesting. Even projectionists back in the dawn of movies, you know, like uh, yeah. there's somebody here in the East, in the East Bay of California, uh, East Bay of San Bay area um, that I was talking to or came up that her grandfather was the head projectionist for one of the big movie studios. It was a very prestigious title, like, you know, because being a projectionist was a big deal back then. And he actually handmade his own projection lenses and then his own camera lenses past that. And if you think now today, like somebody who runs the, you know, the the projector at a movie screen is sort of like you push the button and away you go. But back then, like, you know, having a top flight projectionist to show the movies was important. And those folks often designed their own lenses um, because that affected the quality of the movie as it was being shown. Um, I've actually started, I actually started for a while trying to find one of his lenses um, that this woman that I know, his grandfather made specifically, I think it was for MGM or something because wow. he was MGM's head projectionist. Yeah. And I was like, I would love to find one of these guys' lenses and slap it on a camera because that would be really fascinating. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that would be a wonderful find if you can, if you can come up with one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for you, you seem to use like in your work, you do, um, a lot of the close-ups. you might use the softer focus stuff and whatnot, but your landscapes seem, you know, quite sharp everywhere. Do you ever sort of, um, take that soft focus or that sort of more, uh, abstract map be the right word, um, type of lens into the field to shoot your trees or your landscapes with, or do you always stay sharp? No, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, uh, I mean, if you give me a second, uh, you guys keep talking. I'll go grab one of the prints that I made. It's been juried into several shows over the years that I made with that ideoscope, half a lens. Oh, sure. Yeah. Told you guys about, and um, it's it's uh, of an oak in Yosemite Valley, and it's 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 soft focus. Your favorite oak, the one you keep going back to. Uh, no, no, my favorite oak, that, that was shot with, uh, my, my eye of the oak image that's on my website was shot with a 240 Fuji, uh, eight by 10, F90, three and a half minute exposure. F90. I can't even imagine F90. And it's just, it's, <laughs> it's really sharp. You know, people talk about, ah, you get to stop down too far. It's like diffraction. I was like, ah, so, come on, whatever. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> Who gives a rat's ass? I'm doing a contact print, and the print will speak for itself. So you you can talk tech technical stuff, and I'm just not going to listen to that because I'm I'm not a technician whatsoever. So I just I just feel it and make it happen, and if it's yeah you know, works, it works, <laughs> whatever. 
But I'll bring this print just to kind of show you guys real quick what I'm talking about. We're going to have to go to video shows, Simon. It's no doubt, you know, there's, uh, when we have guests like Jim on, who's, uh, yeah, you know, folks listening, um, yeah, we can we can yeah. see his lovely lenses and his his huge tailgate cameras or whatever They're they are behind massive. it. Massive. Yeah, so we can paint a picture for viewers of this two wonderful cameras behind him. Whether you can see this. Oh, nice. So this is shot with that. That lens, and it's a single oak on a trail. But what what drew me to this is the lighting on the back that was backlit. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. So I put the, the lens on, and you just look underneath the dark, and literally, I'm laughing because it's it's so good. I can't wait to shoot it. And and that's what that's what you can see, what you see when you you're working with the soft focus lenses. Mm-hmm. You get them to a sweet spot, leave them there. When you put them on your camera, it's just like, oh my god. You know, how much film do I have? And presumably, when you're looking at an image like that, so for very... sorry, Jim, but when you when you're looking at an image like that through your ground glass, and for people, can people see that picture somewhere on your website? Is that is that yeah, photograph on your website somewhere, Jim? Yeah, yeah, it should be. It's probably in the. Uh, it might be in the soft focus section. Okay, but the, uh, quite a lot of them, I noticed that you were going. You know, you're the heavily backlit tree subjects and. And if you're using a soft focus lens, I'm guessing you're you're looking at trying to base your exposure so you're getting some, you know, a decent amount of shadow and mid-tone detail. Um, I mean, do you, with with your, I know we haven't got onto your carbon printing process really yet, but do you have to worry about those highlights at all, or you are you worried about them? And how, what effect does the carbon printing process have on sort of highlight retention or whatever? I I, I worry I I. I look at my shadow detail. Where's my shadow? I, that's where my shadow reading. I base my exposures on my shadow reading naturally. But then the highlights, I just kind of want to know where they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they don't bother me whatsoever. You know, okay. the hotter the better. <laughs> well, I I think I just avoid. Sorry, Jim. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the things when we uh, talk in this way, you, 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 we uh, crash over each other. Um, you were going to say something there, Jim. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, I think I think this is a a good time um, to do a proper inter- introduction of uh, this week's guest, who you've, we've we've heard quite a bit about al- already. So, um, Andrew, would you would you like to do the honors? Yeah, sure. Um... Well, Jim was brought to our attention. I mean, I may have, I may well have been aware of Jim's work before, but I, you know, you see so much stuff, don't you, out there? But Jim, Jim was brought to our attention by uh, Michael Wellman. We've named and shamed him now. The one, so he said, "There's this curmudgeonly guy you need to get on who does brilliant things with <laughs> carbon transfer printing." And I'd read a bit about that, and when I think of when I read it in a book, I never really understood it. So I, I've been and looked at YouTube videos that Jim does, and fantastic so jim's bio on his website and you did write this jim so you know forgive me jim fitzgerald is a large and ultra large format photographer he's a camera builder so that's interesting and we know already he's um, a, a lens lover and carbon transfer specialist mr fitzgerald is also an educator who teaches the historic process known as carbon transfer printing and you're residing in washington Jim. So welcome to the show, Jim. It's lovely 
really lovely to have you on. And you're not curmudgeonly at all. Uh, well, I don't know. We'll see as time goes on. Andrew, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Simon, thank you as well. And Eric, uh, thank you too. Uh, it, it's it's nice to be on. I'm, I'm really happy to be involved in this. And I'll try to keep my curmudgeonness to, uh, at bay. But also thank you for the shout-out from Michael Wellman. Because, uh, you know, Michael's a really, really great guy, wonderful photographer. And I had the honor of, of uh, working with him in my darkroom up here in Vancouver, Washington. And was he was the last uh, carbon transfer student I had before COVID kind of shut everything down. So um, I, I'm glad that he, you know, gave me uh, the heads up about you guys. And I'm happy to yeah. be here. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I, uh, because um, you know, I've talked about this before. We, we within social me- within the social media world, we think we kind of all know each other. You know, we talk about this film community, and yet, you know, you you you're out there doing your thing, and suddenly now you're aware of us. We're aware of you, and and yet those little non-COVID bubbles were in existence, weren't they? And it's like, you know, it's almost like did they ever exist before we knew about them? You know, if a tree falls in a forest, has it really fallen? <laughs> So, you know, what do we mean by film community? I have no idea, and I have no idea what I'm talking about. Jim, how did you go from uh, 110 photography to shooting huge cameras? Tell us a little bit about your photographic journey. Well, the, the photographic journey was kind of like everybody's journey, I think. You know, I started I started with that little 110 camera when I was on a vacation around, around the western United States and Canada in about 19... 19- 7071. Uh, I got serious and bought uh, a Canon AE1 when it first came out in the mid 70s, and then shortly thereafter, I bought a Canon F1. Um, I wanted the professional model at the time and was dialed into Canon equipment for years. And then kids came along, and uh, my photography kind of just went to family photos and that kind of thing. And then here, probably oh, a little over 20 years ago, I started to get uh, interested in my creative side of photography again and um, started out with a 4x5. I bought a, a Zone 6 4x5 and some lenses and really enjoyed working with that. And I was shooting color landscape work, um, a lot of early morning sunrises, both in – I, I kind of skipped over 120. I, I bought a couple of uh, Mamiya 645s. Uh, the 645 Pro and a, and a 1000S that I was using uh, and shooting 120 Velvia uh, and was shooting uh, 4x5 uh, Velvia as well. Uh, and just, uh, I was I was working a sales job along the central coast of California and it allowed me to get up early and go into my territory and shoot along the coast. And so it was, it was good, but I was, I was shooting a lot of color and seeing in color and then, uh, a friend of mine who was kind of feeding my passion at a camera store uh, down in Reseda, California, he just asked if I had ever shot any black and white. I'm like, uh, no. And had you ever developed any black and white film? I'm like, no. So he got me set up with a little canister and developed some 120 black and white. And then at that point, after I developed the first roll, I was like, yeah, this is, this is awesome. So, I progressed from 120 to 4x5 black and white, and I was enlarging um, and printing silver black and white for, I don't know, a year or two, 
And then um, I ended up at one of my favorite places because I lived in Southern California, six hours away from Yosemite, standing at uh, Inspiration Point, Tunnel View, whatever people like to recognize it by. And uh, a fellow there had an 8x10 set up, and I had my 4x5 set up, and he begged me not to look in the viewfinder. And I said, I got to look at the ground glass. He's like, no, no, you can't do it because you know what? Once you look, you're not going to want anything, you know, you're going to want it. And so I looked and I'm like, holy crap, this is amazing. And so I bought a, I bought a uh, Seneca improved 8x10, similar to like a Kodak 2D. It's got the rail at the back that you screw in and everything. And I shot with that for several years. Um, and created some wonderful work and I was printing in Azo and uh, Azo Amandal developer doing contact prints and was making some of the best work I had made at the time. The prints were gorgeous. And um, I was online surfing the net, um, one of the forums, and I saw a post from uh, who's now a dear friend of mine, a gentleman by the name of Vaughn Hutchins who lives in Blue Lake, California. At the time, he was living in Eureka. And it was a picture of his kids uh, at the base of Bridalville Fall in, when it was dry. It wasn't a lot of water coming. And it just online, it had a three-dimensional look to it. And I just couldn't, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I'm like, what the heck is that? And it was a carbon print. So I was like, what the heck is that? So the great thing for Google, I just I went on Googled it and I, I found resources for for carbon printing and and uh, Bostick and Sullivan had a carbon form at the time. So I went on there, joined the group, and then I, I read every post, everything that I could read and find, and then I read everything I could search online and I became consumed with how do you do this and articles from Sandy King back he's back in I think North Carolina. Uh, I read all the articles. I got into developing. I started off developing all my film in PyroCAD HD, and I, I still use Pyro today. Um, and I just became excited by it because it was, um, you know, carbon printing was, you, you had to do all this stuff, you know, but it didn't seem like that outrageous. So I, uh, I sent Vaughn an email and I said, hey, uh, I'd love to see your work well he said come on up to yosemite because i'm in the yosemite renaissance show with a couple of platinum prints or a platinum print at the time and i'll bring some carbon prints so that was back i think in late 06 early 2007 and uh it's it's a moment that i always draw on for inspiration because it literally changed my life as a photographer I, I I found what I was meant to do, and I knew what I wanted to do. I had it in my head for years, but I couldn't I couldn't produce it in the work that I was printing. And as soon as I saw his prints, I knew exactly that that's what I was meant to do. And I, I told him, I said, "God, this has changed my life." And I was kind of tearing up over it because it was really emotional impact for me. Uh, to search for something like that and, and find it was really just special. So uh, Vaughn and I went out shooting, and, and uh, it wasn't, but uh, I think that was in 06. And then in 2007, um, uh, I, I 
did a series um, of images of the Black Oaks in Yosemite Valley, and it's uh, it's a book that I've published. And the the signature image that for me on that, one my favorite image that I think I've done to date is uh, Eye of the Oak, and it's this massive oak that uh, I photographed and I entered it in the Yosemite Renaissance competition in 07 and was juried in. And my mentor at the time had entered Carbon Prince and he didn't get in. I called him up all excited and he's just like, well, I don't know how to feel. I was like, dude, what are you kidding? I said, <laughs> be proud because without you, I would never, never be here. So I always and continually thank Vaughn for his continued friendship the relationship we have is just awesome and uh uh he's he's the one who got me started in carbon transfer printing uh because of seeing his work it was the inspiration was just amazing so and then the journey just continued on from there i haven't done anything but print carbon for going on 14 years now when you saw that first carbon print and you'd been printing gelatin silver printing before and you know presume you can and you know, it's what I do, and and I hold that print in my hand. And if you get it right, you know, I do a bit of you know, trying to make those shadows live and the highlights with a, a nice glow and some nice tones. And you picked up and held your first really nice carbon print for the first time. What was it that struck you about that medium, which said to you, "This is what I've been missing." The the depth of and the richness of the print. Um, carbon prints have got just a unique depth to them. They kind of draw you in to where you can draw, you can walk into the image. Part of that's due to the relief sometimes that you get. And the other is the image composition. You know, naturally you can get that with just about any, uh, any properly composed image. You can draw the viewer in if you compose it properly. But I found that the, the, the controls that I had in the carbon transfer process were more intuitive to me because part of the process you create a pigmented gelatin that is the tone of your final image and you can manipulate that tone by using different papers and different techniques during the development process to let your voice you know say what it wants to say and I wasn't able to get that in the silver prints that I was making they you know I, I I, maybe I could have worked with different, you know, toners and everything, but it was, it was, um, it was just something that was more organic for me. That was just hands-on handmade. Everything had to be done by hand. You had to make everything and create the image from scratch. And so I, I just gravitated towards that and it was really, really good. It was, it was me and, and I knew it. So I've been able to make prints and I took some of my Azo prints that I had made and I had printed those in carbon again, did side-by-side -side comparison and tried to be as objective as possible. I even showed a couple friends and they said, my God, there's something about the carbon print that just allows you to walk into the image that it's just got a life to it that I don't see it in the Azo print that you have here. Even though it's beautiful, if you look at them separately, it's like, God, this is awesome. But if you look at them side by side, to me, there was just a unique quality that those prints had that I just, I sold all my ASO. I, I went online and at the time I was able to sell all the ASO I had um, and dedicated myself to, you know, printing and carbon.
Have you ever? Sorry, go ahead. Three go people. Ahead. We have fine. three questions. I say um, the carbon transfer. I was I was looking at it um, yesterday and today, and um, one of the interesting things that I saw was there's also theoretically the option to use carbon uh, printing like this to to do color, to lay in like layers of color and do a color print um, instead of hand coloring or, or you know painting or like that. Have you ever tried that? You know, because it seems like you came from shooting Velvia, which is, you know, the, back in the day, the color film for landscapes, really vibrant, beautiful film, um, to getting these beautiful sort of glowing, have a life of their own carbon prints. Did you ever think of doing or have you ever tried color carbon printing? Because I'm super curious about it. It's a great, it's a great question, Eric. I, I, I've known of color printing in carbon for a long time. Um, I had a good friend of mine, maybe some people might know his name, Gordon Chapel. He actually lived up, um, in the East Bay. I forget, uh, oh, I want to say Mill Creek or I, I forget exactly, uh, where it was, but, uh, Gordon was a influence to me early on and we spent hours on the phone when I was early on in my carbon transfer career and I was just, he was so excited because there was someone else who was excited about carbon transfer printing. Very few of us at the time. And so I, I would talk to him every day for hours and, and he'd finally say, Jim, I got to go. I got, I got stuff to do. It's like, okay, what well, can I call you tomorrow? He said, absolutely. And so, so, um, unfortunately, um, Gordon and his wife were killed in Escalante Canyon in a flash flood many years ago and uh, I went up to uh, uh, to help his adult kids go through Gordon's stuff and assess some value to lenses and cameras and all the stuff that, that they had and um, the most spectacular carbon transfer color carbon transfer print I've ever seen in my life was a shot of Escalante Canyon there was about an 18 by 22 carbon print, color carbon print hanging on the wall of his house at the end of a hallway. And I literally had to sit down because I was so overwhelmed at the beauty and the amazing realism. The colors were pure. They were not oversaturated. It was like you were in the canyon and all you needed is to just close your mind off and you could hear the sounds it was just amazing and he had several of those around and and gordon was he had printed color for years and he had developed a system where he was doing seven layer transfers in monochrome so there's a technique where you can layer in different layers yeah mid-tones highlights to to build the image up and i was just blown away and i ended up with a lot of Gordon's materials because his kids said, well, we got to take this to a chemical dump. We got to get rid of it because my God, we don't know what to do with it. So I said, well, if you don't, I'll take it because I can use it. And they were more than happy to, you know, to give it to me. So the exposure unit I have behind me here in my studio is Gordon Chapel's exposure unit. And it's, it's very, very dear to me. And I really think part of his, soul comes through in some of the prints that I make because we had a real wonderful relationship as short as it was. And, and I think it really helps. Um, I know it does when, when I'm printing. Um, and so, uh, the, uh, 
the whole steps and the process and everything just kind of kind of gel. It just kind of worked. But color, I've never tried. Um, I know it takes. I, and honestly, it's it, there's too much digi- digital interface for me. Oh, okay. I, I'm not, you, because you need to make, make the digital color separations for each right. layer, and you transfer each layer and build up each layer. So, you know, you can do three-color, you can do four-color carbon. You I can know two-color. Yeah, and so I know people that, that you know, do uh, color carbon uh, printing. Todd Gangler up here in, in Seattle is a master color carbon printer. Um, and it's just, it's just... It, it's it's not for me. I I have a love of the monochrome, and I don't think I'll ever get good enough to 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 know everything there is about monochrome printing. I still I still feel I'm 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 kind of there, but there's so much still to learn. And and you know people say I'm an expert in all this stuff, and it's like no, nah, I'm I'm, a, I'm an enthusiast, someone who loves the process, but I've still got so much. So much to learn uh, about the process that I learn something new every print I make. Every day that I'm in the dark room printing something is is just wonderful. And I mean, I'm going on 14 years of doing the same thing, and I'm just like, it's like the first time I've ever done it when I go in there to make a print. You so enthusi- color- you're do it's just it's just uh, it's just too much too much uh, too much to do. Jim, your enthusiasm shines through from the couple of videos I've seen when you're out in the field, you know, you get excited by the image and you're clearly excited by the process. So this is, you know, for anyone who's used to traditional gelatin silver printing, this, uh, this process is really quite uh, alien in, in many ways. And, and my mind was really blown when I watched the video because I'd, I'd read about carbon printing, but uh, had no, I couldn't really visualize the words, you know, when I read about it. So to see it being done by you on your video was excellent. So for those who haven't seen that video, um, maybe you could just explain, uh, you know, don't, you don't need to go into masses of detail, but just the steps and, uh, and so people get a sense of it. And in particular, that nuclear reactor that you then put uh, the prints into, because that also amazed me. <laughs> Oh yeah, of course. Well, I'll, I'll simplify it. I mean, the 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 thing that really drew me in, I was really excited about, is one of the things was the archival quality. These are the most archival prints you can make. There's there's nothing that'll deteriorate. You basically have hardened gelatin. Once it hardens, there's nothing going to affect it unless you take it and tear it apart. Um, so it's one of the most archival, I believe it is the most archival print you can make. Now, I don't, I'm not a scientist, historian, all that, but that's the research I've done so far indicates that. But the other thing was, is you can create your own image tone by using inks and pigments in blends or one pigment or several and blend them together to create a tonality for your images that you want to present and you can standardize that or you can change it up if you have a series of I always use an example of like you're shooting a series of rec- red brick buildings or something like that and you can tone put a little reddish uh, pigment into your mix and instead of a, a warm brown or a warm black you can have a reddish black image tone 
So you can kind of kind of play with the tonality and that creativity of being able to do that was like, oh my, you're kidding me? This is great. So so you first make a pigmented gelatin um, and then you pour it onto a temporary substrate. It's hot and you pour it onto a temporary substrate. I use a fixed out sheet of x-ray film because the great thing is, is once you're done with it, you can reuse that. So this process is very inexpensive. You know, the only chemical that you use that I use here in, in the United States, they can't use it in, uh, in Europe, is ammonium or potassium dichromate. So I mix up, you know, dilutions of uh, ammonium dichromate into different strengths as a contrast control. And so after I, after I make this pigmented gelatin and I pour the pigmented gelatin, I make generally eight sheets of what we call tissue. Uh, after the pigment's on there and you hang it up to dry, it's now called tissue. The material that you make's got a really cool name. We call it glop. I love that name. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's a, and I, and my, my friend Vaughn Hutchins and I were talking about that at a workshop we did in Yosemite last year. And he said, you know, I think I'm the one who coined that term. And I said, you know, I think you were because I remember when it came up, you said it to me, but I'd never heard it anywhere else. So, yeah, glop is what we call this stuff. It's, it's really cool. So you mix up the glop, you pour it, you let these tissues dry for about, you know, two to three days. Make sure they're, they're dry all the way through. They may dry on the surface if you want to dry as far in as possible because humidity plays into the process, temperature, there's a lot of variables. So once that tissue is dry... Then you take a measured amount of the diluted ammonium dichromate, and I use strengths that go anywhere from 0.375% all the way up to 12% as a contrast control. So the lower the strength sensitizer, the higher the contrast it is, and the higher the strength, the lower the contrast is one control you have. The other control you have for contrast is how much pigment you put in to your tissue when you make it. The lower the pigment load, higher the contrast, higher the pigment load, excuse me, lower the contrast on on lower pigment amount, higher contrast on higher pigment amount. So you've got ways to balance out how one works with the other, which is confusing for a lot of people. But it's just, you can split hairs with it. Is is it one of the, so just go back to the negative and you mentioned you use Pyrocat HD and uh-huh. you know it's a lot of people use that for alternative processes, um, f- you know for 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 lots of reasons. But uh, it, it is that the sort of perfect negative to you know made with Pyrocat HD for this process in your experience? Well, I've I've read that the staining effect of the negatives works well with a UV process. Yeah. Again, Andrew, I I got to go from. Uh, just all the reading and everything I've done, how that all works out and the graphs and the charts and all that stuff that people show is like way over my head. I can't explain it. I just know that I've got to get a negative that's got sufficient density in it and it's more stout than, say, a silver negative would be. Yeah. Do you use, uh, a, get- use a concentration for normal – if you're using Pyrocat for developing film for normal processes – usually one plus one plus a hundred. Do you push that to one plus I, I, two or two plus I two? Or do, 
two two one hundred. Yeah. Yeah, two two one hundred okay. is generally where I where I standardize. So and you've got I this. I develop by inspection too. So. Okay. Yep. So you've got this um, tissue which is now dry, which you've mixed your pigment with, and you're coating it. Um, what well, didn't appear to be, it appeared to be under dim artificial light when I saw the video. I was intrigued by that because I didn't know much about ammonium dichromate. But that's it. I was expecting you to brush it with silver nitrate or something like like I'm used to in making salt prints. That's that's the that's the the sensitizer. That's what makes it light sensitive. Is so so I'll I'll I have changed since that video was done. I use a foam roller. And I've got to update some of the information. I use a, a foam sponge roller. It's like a little paint roller. Yeah. And what you do is if I'm going to do an 8x10 print, I'll, I'll have uh, 6 milliliters of sensitizer and about 6 to 8 milliliters of acetone. Acetone is just the vehicle to allow it to penetrate into the substrate. So I pour on half of that solution and I roll it on with a sponge roller. Until it's until it's dry, you can see there's no liquid left on there. That takes about a minute, minute and a half, two minutes maybe. And then I pour on the other half and I roll it out. And after I'm done with that, then I'll you know I'll stand it up on my darkroom sink and I'll put a fan on it and I'll let it dry for about at least two to three hours. And it starts to lose its sensitivity the longer you let it let it dry. But I find two and a half to three hours is generally dry. Uh, it depends on humidity in your darkroom, temperature. There's a, again, humidity and temperature play into this, and I keep really accurate notes when it comes to that. But then once that sensitizer is done and dry, you can take it out and put it in the exposure unit. But now my recent student, Logan Clark, who I've spoken about and I've, I've taught, uh, he's, he's done some testing with a UV meter. And we tested it in my dark room, and even with my overhead lights on, um, there's not enough UV to make any difference. The meter reading is like almost just a little over zero over my sink, so I could actually, I could actually sensitize it in in you know with the lights on. Yeah, so you can use that's what I, I guess that was what I was getting at really. So if you're coating it, as long as you're out of the sunlight and you're out of any light source with UV, you can just mm -hmm. coat it in under tungst tungsten lights i guess yeah i say there's there's a lot of alternative yeah. old processes that rely on uv light where they're just like yeah draw the curtains do it on your dining room table just make sure you don't have any, yeah. any so, uv lights and away you go yeah. so you've got this sensitized sorry go ahead no i said it was news to me because i i had worked in yellow the yellow dim light from day one so mm. habit right if it's not broke, I'm not going to change a thing because I'm getting great prints. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I mess with it. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. So I was just going to say, once you've got your sensitized tissue, you're then putting that into contact emulsion to emulsion with your negative, aren't you? And putting right. it in this nuclear furnace. Do you have to use something that's yeah, that looks to be the showstopper for most normal people getting into this process? This big thing you've got there which glows like a nuclear reactor. That's and correct. Blasts this print. Well that that's that is the showstopper for a lot of people. Okay, so what what I I use that because I have all my exposures dialed in and I've got I've got fourteen years worth of notes 
using that exposure unit. I, I got notes on every print that I've made. And so it's something I, I'm very adamant about new students keeping notes. If they don't keep notes, then I don't want to talk. I won't help you. Because first thing they, when they send me an email going, I got a problem, Jim, I say, okay, well, what, what, tell me what you did. I, read me your notes. Uh, uh, it's like, okay, I'll give you one shot. If you don't have notes. Oh, this is the curmudgeonliness coming out on you. We'd get there eventually. Don't even bother. (laughs) Because you know what? I'm giving you everything you need to do to make beautiful prints. But if you don't do what I say, because you think you know something better, then, you know, you get what you deserve. But, but so, uh, you don't have to use an exposure unit like this. There's a, uh, I bought, I haven't tested them yet, but my friend Logan has, and they work beautifully. There's, uh, you can get two 100 watt LED units on Amazon for like 75 bucks. And if you want, I'll have to find a link and send it to you. UV tube. Uh, you just have to, you have to hang them, suspend them above a contact printing frame. Mm-hmm. And you can use that as your exposure unit. Right. And I'm, I, the reason I got those is because I, I teach some workshops where I'm going to have to take exposure units with me, and I can't haul that thing. So I, I still have to do testing with these, with these lights, but they're very similar in their exposure time to what I have in my Newark plate burner. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, that's huge, and people will build their own UV boxes, black light bulbs, and all that kind of thing. But these are simple. You get two 100-watt units for 75 bucks, um, and the one unit will handle easily a uh, 11 by 14 print. And if you probably suspend it a little higher, it'd probably cover one of my 14 by 17 prints. Exposure time might increase, but it'll give you the UV that you need. So what's happening there then? You're shining this UV through. You've got this sensitized tissue and maybe it's called something else at this point i can't remember and you're you're it's effectively like making a contact print but instead of just gelatin silver paper you've got this sensitive base underneath and the image is being almost driven into this surface isn't it is that right that's being like burned into it yeah so so what what i do is once once everything is dry and I'll, i'll get a a clear duralar sheet that I put between the sensitized tissue and the negative, because in case there's any residual moisture due to the heat of the unit, it will pull, may pull some residual moisture out of that sensitized tissue. Yeah. You want to protect the negative. And so then also at that point, I put what's called a safe edge. So that's either done with lith tape or, 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 or black artist tape to mask off the edge. So I have a nice clean edge so that when I, um, develop the print there's not a lot of gelatin on the outside edge it gives just a cleaner cleaner finish and will eliminate any pot if you don't put a safe edge around when you get to the development stage you can actually tear the image off because that safe edge blocks the light and then that way you have a clean edge and it won't affect your image when you're you're trying to develop it so it's something that has to be it really has to be done so your finished print. So one. Go ahead. So you you may well have been the, to answer the question. Your finished print is is that um, 
gelatin pigmented substrate, not substrate's the wrong word, you know, the tissue, with the image printed onto it. That's effectively the final image. Is that right? No. No. What no. what after I've after I've done the exposure, and it's generally in there for about 18 minutes to 20 mm-hmm. minutes, my standard exposure time. I shut the unit off and I put the negative away, take off that Duralar sheet, put it away. Now now the pigmented gelatin tissue, which is black, you can't see a latent image on there and there's nothing. You can't see anything. So I take that tissue and in my dark room I have a tray of cold water, about fifty degrees. I forget what it is centigrade, but it's you know, forty forty eight to fifty degrees. You you need you need to have cool water. I just keep a couple gallons of water in my refrigerator with the caps off loosely on them to eliminate any outgassing bubbles when they come out of the faucet. It's just faucet water. So I loosely cap it and let it sit in there overnight. I dump it in a, a tray so it's I've got a, a sufficient quantity of water because the next step is the transfer process. So I've already pre-fixed out a piece of silver gelatin paper. Now it can be matte, it can be semi-gloss, it can be high-gloss, it can be color paper, it can be fiber paper, it can be, you know, any kind of, you know, coated uh, photographic paper or other substrates you can transfer to. But I transfer the majority of my work to paper. I've transferred to glass, you can do aluminum, you can do all kinds of things. But I use fixed out photographic paper. And it can be expired photographic paper. I've got paper that's way out of date that people give me because it's like they can't use it. It's like, God, take it. So I have a lot of paper. I got thousands of rolls of paper and sheets of paper in my darkroom closet. Yeah, because when people realize you're a photographer who does things like physically with the old school, they just unload things on you. Like, oh yeah, yeah. It's just like a constant like they just clean out their closets and like you want this old crap. You're like, ah, absolutely. Paper. And I give the paper away to to people who are carbon printers. They take a workshop from me. I send them home with with tissue support. I send them home with tissue that they can print from, and I send them home with paper because I got too much paper. I just fix it out, and you, you can use it. So I have a fixed out sheet of 11 by 14 photographic paper for an 8 by 10 image in a tray of cold water. And it's emulsion side up. I take the sheet of tissue, which is actually a 10 by 12 inch sheet. It's coated with the, the gelatin and the image is in there. And then I scoop it emulsion down and emulsion up. So the tissue, the uh, photo paper is emulsion up, tissue emulsion down, and I float it underwater, but uh, not in contact with the final support paper for about 45 seconds, okay, to let it absorb water. And then at that time, about 45 seconds in, I mate the two together underwater, keeping my hands underwater all the time. I don't want to in- introduce any bubbles. I, I gently push them together. I grab one corner and I pull it up and I grab the other corner and I drain it. Let, it. let it drain and I take it to a table with a sheet of glass on it and I squeegee it, holding on to the sandwich with one hand while I squeegee all the excess water off. And, and I keep squeegeeing it and then wiping it 
uh, I wipe dry the edges, wipe off all the, the moisture. I put a sheet of newspaper over it, a sheet of glass. And you don't need to put a weight on it, but I've been putting a weight on it for so long, I just put a weight on it. And you let it sit for about a half an hour. There's a method where you can transfer and develop, and you can in, go in, instantly develop it. I'm old school. I'm sticking with what works. I don't want to do that. So, so I, I wait the half hour, take the glass off, take everything off. Now I have a sandwich that's combined together, and I take it to a tray of about 115 to 120 degree Fahrenheit water, tap water that's just, it's, it's, it's warm. It's hot, yeah. It's, it's hot. It's not, not, not bad. And once I immerse that entire sandwich into that tray of hot water, that is where the transfer from the temporary support to the final support takes place at that moment of immersion in the hot water. So I let it sit in the hot water and let it sit there, make sure it stays under the water for about a minute. Then I'll take my finger and I'll run it around the outside edge just to loosen the tension there to allow the water to get in to help melt the gelatin. I usually let it wait about four minutes and then I will uh, work my hand on one end, one of the short ends, and I'll pull from left to right. And I'll pull down the, the final support and I'll gently peel back this tissue. And all of the black goo that's on that tissue, the gelatin has all been transferred to the final support. So once I get that tissue off there completely and clean, I'm like, yoo-hoo. Because that's where all this time you've invested can come back to haunt you if you've done something wrong. Because as you're peeling this thing off, you peel the image off. If you've overexposed it or you've done something wrong in the process, it will tear the image. And now you've got like a mess. And it's like, oh, geez, this is too much work. Now I've had I've had a few of those things happen over the years, but generally, generally, uh, it's I've been doing it for so long I can just it just happens. I don't even really think about it anymore. But once you get to that point of getting getting that tissue support off, I put it on a on a um, a tablet so I can rinse it off and use it later. So cost of materials is nothing. You know I can reuse that sheet to pour more tissue on it. So now I've got this rectangle of black in a tray of hot water. And because the way I manufacture my tissues, I pour uh, a relatively thick uh, tissue. And um, so it's about a millimeter and a half thick. So as I melt it, I can get re relatively aggressive with it. I can shake it. And so I'll shake it from all the different corners. And that helps to release the gelatin and the pigment will start to melt away. Now, how it all works is, is the, the exposure goes through and, and you eliminate the highlights, release more pigment, mid-tones a little less, and shadows, you know, not much at all. You know, so depending on your negative and the image and everything, you'll have it melting away at various rates. And so you generally take the image and you develop it to where it looks a little bit hot in the highlights because there is dry down once it dries down. And as you take it out and you, you shake it and everything, you get it done, and then you take it up and, and you look at it, that's when you can see a lot, of, a lot of relief in just about any image you print because the gelatin is swollen with water. 
And uh, I don't know, people can say I'm a curmudgeon, but here you go. Here's another curmudgeon moment is I see so many things on YouTube and on, on Facebook where new carbon printers are showing these prints and they're showing all the relief and everything. I'm like, really? I mean, it's wet. It's swollen with gelatin. And I don't like the fact that they're showing people this and they're misleading people because they need to clarify themselves and say, look, you know, here it is when it's wet. Here's what it looks like when it dries. Because I have a lot of my prints that dry down and there's very little, if any, relief. And then some will dry with wonderful relief. Okay, but the bottom line is, who cares about the relief? The relief is a bonus, at least for me. And a lot of people, that's what they come to carbon printing for is they want to see the relief because you do get a beautiful dimensional relief which adds to the depth of, you know, the image. And so I print for that sometimes and sometimes I don't print for that. Depends on on the image itself and how I feel about it. But there is that potential to do that. But, you know, come on, guys, just show the final print. All right. That's interesting. That's interesting because, I mean, I, I use a lot of fiber paper and I'm well aware of dry down issues and um, people who've listened to this show for a while will know that I take a test strip and stick it in the microwave and dry it down because the highlights which are affected by dry down normally, it's to do with the, um, the way the fibers pull together when they're drying. If you can dry the silver gelatin paper and tape it to a sheet of glass and stop it contracting, Actually, you don't need to allow for dry down because dry down doesn't happen if the paper is taped to a piece of glass because the fibers don't contract. Mm -hmm. But there is a noticeable difference. And if you, I see it as well. So I know exactly I can join you in curmudgeonliness. You see people showing a lovely wet fiber print and the, and the highlights are perfect. Well, they're perfect when it's like that. But when sure. it's dry, they've lost that glow, you know. So you do need to print it. So the highlights are hotter. So, in fact, sometimes you think, well, there's no detail in the highlights, and you, and you have to stop yourself because you know it's going to be okay when it dries down. So sure. it's interesting. It's the same with sure. the – You know, and I, I understand people, you know, people are excited about it, and yeah. they want to show it and everything. And, and it, it's cool. It really looks cool. I mean, I think I've even done a couple of them. And, and, and uh, you know, it's like, well, no, but you got to let people know that you know, when it dries down, you may lose the relief, you know, or you may have some. So, Is there something you can do to get the relief? So if you want something with more relief to it, is there something you yeah. do in, the, in that whole process? Generally, generally, with the proper negative and the proper image, you can, you can print on a, on a glossy fiber paper and you'll get a beautiful You'll, you'll get nice relief. Or you can print on an RC glossy paper and you'll get nice relief. Glass? What about glass or, or shiny metal, you know, almost like in a tin type or metal, you can you can print on you can print on metal mm -hmm. and, and get beautiful relief. Or on glass. Glass will give you you know gorgeous relief as well. If you did it on glass you could do orotones. I've I've got a couple of orotones, yeah. Right. I mean, because you could either do the orotone by tinting the pigment or do the orotone by yeah. The, the, the gold lacquer, you know. Yeah, I actually, I actually took a workshop at the George Eastman house here a couple with years Mark, ago. with Mark Osterman. Or Mark. And I'm uh, tell you, we need to get Mark on the show and as well. Well, get on to it then. This was this was I I think 2017. Okay. And Mark sent me an email when you know I was asking about the workshop, and he he said he said why are you taking a workshop? 
from us. He said, you should be teaching us the workshop. You know, because they know all the historic processes and they, they yeah. touch on a lot of ones, but not in depth. And I told Mark, I said, Mark, I said, you know, there's always something you can learn from a carbon workshop. It's a, probably the, I took one carbon workshop with Vaughn many years ago. But my reason for taking that workshop is I wanted to delve into the history of the process and go back and do some historic reading in their library, which was absolutely wonderful. And the other bonus was we got to see historic carbon prints from the early days all the way up into, I think, the late 80s. And so, you know, we were going through, went through the workshop and everything, and I kind of helped answer some questions that people were having and they had their technique of doing things. You know, they were sensitizing by immersion as opposed to rolling sensitizer on. So they had different working methods, but everybody was making beautiful prints and we were printing from glass negatives, from collodion negatives, which was awesome. And then also, you know, Mark was going to show everybody how to print on glass. Now I had read a lot about printing on glass and all of this stuff that you had to do all this prep and all this stuff in order to get it dude here and all this misinformation was out there. And I sat Mark down, we talked for a bit and I said, so what is the deal about printing on glass? Why, where's all this confusion? He said, well, you just need to, you need to drop a Dawn dishwashing liquid, put it on your finger and rub it around under a wet glass, rinse it off. Don't touch it. And you're good to go. I said, that's it. You don't need to etch it. You don't. He said, "No, that's 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 all you need. This stuff, when it grabs, it grabs." And so, you know, printing on glass was, it's 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 slippery when you transfer it. It, it you got to hold on to it. That thing wants to just slide off because it's on your sheet of glass. It's really slippery. Um, but uh, that was wonderful because I was able to see the historic prints. I think the oldest print that they had was from 18, 1860 or 70. And it looked like the day it was made. I mean, it looked like the day it was made. It was unbelievable. And they had different period time periods all the way up to uh, color carbon prints. There's a, there was a color carbon print of Rita Hayworth in Hollywood dress. And you could, you could see the goosebumps on her chest. And the red hair was just like, you could talk to her. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. And the print was like I mean, in the mid 80s or something like that. And I forget who the artist was. So it was just, it was a, that, that visual and the ability to do research was what drew me there. And, and then uh, working with Mark was, was just a joy. It was, it was really, really fun. But yeah, he's a wealth of knowledge. And he's, lear- he's learned all of the things that he knows through the historic readings he's done at their research library. I asked him, I said, how'd you learn collodion and all that? He said, well, we have all the research here. We read all the research. You follow all of that um, instructions, basically, because the scientific journals at the time, they were writing in these scientific journals how they did stuff. And that's how artists would trade information back in the 1800s. So I was reading some of these... 1800 journals about carbon printing it's fascinating so um he'd be a great guest for you yeah absolutely absolutely actually i was curious since we talked about you know transferring it to to, uh, glass and tin or whatever i always i'm curious wonder about 
um, some of these older processes because I shoot for me, a lot of those things that I do that I enjoy are out in the field, like making a negative, not making it, but making the lens and shooting. I don't have that much fun in a dark room, but I'm always curious, like, could you take what you call the tissue, right? Um, could you shoot something like that in the camera? Like if you did it thin enough to be able to put it in like a, a tin type holder or a plate holder, how sensitive is it? Could you conceivably take and put that into a camera and shoot it? Yeah. And then develop it? Or would it be just too slow? Probably, but the ISO would probably be really, really slow. I mean, the ISO would probably be negative, negative 100 or something. I don't know. Right. I mean, because I the I use a Newark uh, 26 1KS mm-hmm. watt plate burn. Okay, now I'm I'm burning that thing for for 20 minutes. Okay. Now out in the sun, okay, the sun's a hell of a lot stronger than you know than my plate burner. So you know maybe without you know, that that'd be an interesting test to see if you could if you could do that. But you would have to uh, just talking out loud here. You'd have to almost coat your final support material and and you know, use that as your, as your final print as well when you're developing way. Uh, interesting, an interesting idea. I, I don't see why it wouldn't work. Uh, the challenge would be, there'd be many challenges. Yeah. Film holder. Right. And, oh God. Yeah. So the list just yeah. goes on. And on. The lens would have to be wide open, right? Because it was stopped down to say F32 or whatnot. That just would take maybe your five minute exposure wide open to make, a 15 or 25 or 30 minute exposure maybe it depends on what you're after but testing the uh, sensitivity of the tissue to to you know sunlight and then you know overcast and bright mm-hmm. sun uh, yeah it could be yeah it could be an interesting challenge more so than color carbon printing i think <laughs> yeah so, so just I curious won't go, i won't do that if logan if logan clark's listening that'll be up his alley <laughs> simon are you still with us I, I shall yeah. unmute, unmute myself. Uh, I do this to him occasionally because we can't. He's, he's sneaky because he's the only one who hasn't got his camera on, and he could I know. be asleep <laughs> for all we know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm still here, and uh, it's it's just been again. It's one of those things where it's it's fascinating fascinating to to listen to all of you, and Eric's given interesting stuff in there as well. And it's it's a case of uh, we were joking beforehand that uh, this this episode is going to be largely above my pay grade, and uh, I had the, I had the feeling I'd be quite quiet uh, for uh, for for the carbon printing section because there's just it's it's well, it's not quite beyond me in comprehension but uh, i mean i've watched the video and uh, and i've got to say for, for those people that have been been listening if if they've found it's a little bit difficult to follow um with with the audio please um go and watch uh, jim's uh, video that it goes into it step by step and it's you, you can understand it. You can see what's going on there, and then once you've seen that, and then you you hear Jim talking about it, it does make a lot of sense. Mm. Um, and th- there are terms in there as well, which are, are, are quite. Uh, I mean, glop is a is a great term because it, 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 it tells you exactly. Uh, Gloop, you know, I think, is better. It should have another zero, no, another no, O glop. in there. Gloop. No, no, it's gl- definitely glop. glop. Definitely, okay. and uh, and if you don't know what glop is, and you th- imagine what glop is, you're right. Um, that's exactly yeah. what it is. Um, and then, but the, the other the other one though is uh, which I still can't get my head around is tissue. I mean, how how on earth that stuff is called tissue uh, when it's you know, some 
some kind of acetate and uh, and carbon um, liquid that's uh, that that goes hard. How's, how's that a tissue, Jim? Uh, somebody came up with that term, and I just ran with it. You know, I, I hey, it is what it is. I I learned when I was learning this process, it was like, what the hell do I know? <laughs> so, why am I going to question anything when I got no clue what's going on here? I'm just I followed. The thing I always tell students now, and I did the same thing early on, is I, you know, you may not know what's going on, and I didn't know what was going on, but I'm following what I was told and how to do it, and then find the results, you know, then just look at the results, and invariably something's going to go wrong. And I heard horror stories about everything that's going going to go wrong, you know, tissue tearing, and all, I mean, it's just nightmarish stuff. And I'm like, well, what the hell? Let's just do this and see what find, you know, what happens. And so, um, the very first carbon print that I made, other than the edges weren't clean and everything, it had a safe edge and everything, but there was residual pigment on the edge and everything. It actually came out perfect. The first print I made by myself, I was just like, okay, something's wrong here. This is this is not right. <laughs> Right, and so you know, with that experience, because I followed the directions that I was given by Vaughn Hutchins at the time, I just said, "Okay, well, this is what you do. So now, just do it again." So I tell I tell the people that I've taught over the years is, "Okay, you've got all that. You've got everything you need." Because I give them a seven-page uh, PDF document that I print about steps. Okay, this is what you have to do. Materials resources, all that kind of stuff. And then we go through it. And in the first day, we go through the entire process and make prints. And the second day, I take them through. And now I'm just a supervisor. Okay, you guys got to sensitize. You guys got to do, you know, all the steps. And we make prints on the second day. And they go home. Generally, most workshop students go home with at least one, two, or three, or maybe even sometimes more finished beautiful gallery quality prints and i'm just as blown away as they are because i'm printing from their negatives so i got no clue what i'm going to get what they're going to throw at me and i've been lucky to send a lot of people home with some beautiful prints or we've had some challenging prints that just need to be tweaked a little bit and we're close but we just don't have the time in the workshop to to be able to you know to get it there due to flight constraints and whatever and and so um you know there's there's so much to learn but the basics of it are relatively straightforward i think what the investment is is time yeah and that is what kind of pushes people away because you need to manufacture materials to make the prints now i look at that as just like that's just the best part the important part is making the tissue making the glob and then the only reason it's called tissue is because it's poured on this temporary substrate, and that's what they called it. But you can use a variety of substrates. I happen to use fixed-out x-ray film because it's cheap and reusable. But you can use RC photographic paper. You can use a, a variety. You can use Yuppo. You can use a variety of, of reusable substrates. But uh, a couple of key points in this that maybe some questions will come up about it is, you know, the the controls that you have for this for this process um, I I enjoy a lot of soft focus work and I enjoy a lot of sharp 
uh, work. And I'm always looking for images with beautiful natural contrast and high contrast images are, are conducive to this process. It's really a, a high contrast process. Um, so if I have a soft focus image, okay, they're generally not as contrasty as something that's going to be sharp and well-defined. So how do you remedy that? So in the manufacturing of my glop and the tissues that I make to print that particular negative, I had said earlier that the more pigment you put in, the higher the contrast the tissue. So, okay, so I've got a low contrast negative. How am I going to print it? Well, traditionally, they say, well, you can't print that. you got to print it in silver. That's what I was told early on. So that's why I have all these different ranges of sensitizers because that's the other part of how I balance out how that image is going to be presented. So I'll make maybe a 24 or 30 gram pigment load tissue that boosts the contrast up. My normal tissue is about 12 gram. And then when I sensitize it, I'll sensitize it with maybe 0.75% or 0.375% strength ammonium dichromate. And that's a high contrast sensitizer. Right. So I always tell people to find a balance. you got to find the balance for the image. And when you find that balance, I mean, you can even tweak it by a lot of times. I mean, I've put in, I've put in three milliliters of 0.375 and three milliliters of, of 0.75. Okay, so how does that, what does that make it? I mean, heck, I don't know. It's, you know, 0.48973 or whatever sensitizer. I, I have no clue. But so there's ways to tweak images to get that contrast just right where you want it, you know, in, in, for that particular image. And then the other thing that I always cover with people is depending on the substrate you're printing on. Let's say you're printing on fixed out photographic fiber paper. Well, as we all know, there's so many different colors of white. Right. There's different tones of white, warm and cool and blue and gray and pink. And I mean, it, it, it runs the gamut. So you can use that as a contrast control as well. Because, you know, you've got some dry down in, in the image. So if you have a bright white paper and you just need a little teeny additional boost in contrast that you haven't been able to get, through the controls you have through sensitizers and pigments and all that, you can get contrast boost or you can reduce it if you go to a warm tone paper in the final support that you presented on. So what's not to like about that? You've got all of this stuff you can control and it's like just let the floodgates go and, and have at it. And, you know, so I, I've been, that's why... That's why I said earlier on, I'm like a kid in a candy store still, uh, just having so much fun going in and printing images because of it's just like, oh, okay, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this. Like, okay, I'm good, let's go. And you know, then you you start to develop a workflow. And and I've had sessions where I I generally put, uh, with the new arc I can get uh, two eight by tens in there and expose two at the same time. If they're different exposures, I just put a board over one and you know pull it off I'll transfer one and then transfer the other and then I'll expose two more and I'll mm -hmm. transfer those and then I develop them you know in reverse order and I had one session a few years ago where I made eight finished prints in one day I, I think 
Oh, sorry. I, I was I was going to say, um, I was just going to say, Jim. Um, uh, I think this might be a good time um, for for us to just go to the ask Eric section oh. um, because um, there there are there's at least one question in there that we need to uh, need to put to you, Eric. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jim. So, uh, yeah. I was saying, there's actually the only question is actually for Jim. But um, hold on, <clears throat> let's see here. Put windows up. Windows. I only have my laptop, so. so you've got the you've got the message as well, haven't you, from Michael? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, all right. So we'll start. With, I'll do it in chronological order, I guess. Um, this one was actually sent in um, more as a as a question to because it says the two to the other two gentlemen on the on the podcast from. I'm going to kill his name, Colin, Colin, Col- Colin. See, I'm going to say Colin, and Colin. you guys can go with Colin. Colin it's like Devereux. tomato, tomato. Yeah, yeah. Co- Colin Devereaux. I think we've we've established uh, that's oh, definitely the only way to say it. <laughs> Devereaux, but it's D E V R O E, isn't that Devereaux? Yeah. Man, yeah, what is up with you? Yeah, don't worry about that. It's it's complicated. It's Colin, it's <laughs> Colin Devereaux, definitely. Colin, I'm going to slaughter your name because they told me so. Colin Devereaux, writes in. <laughs> Hello, fellas. I'm following up on our Twitter conversation, Ari having a virtual pint together. I might even use the opportunity to record a little bit for my podcast. Perhaps I can work in a question or two, a question for the two of you about the journey through the first 40 episodes of LFPP. We'll see. But either way, I'd love to have a chat. I'm Eastern time in the U.S. What time of day is best? Do you have any available time coming up within the next week or so? Warmest regards, Colin. Well, gentlemen, are you going to have a pint with, with Colin, or are you going to leave him hanging? I mean, that was I'm, up to I'm, you two. It's not I'm always two um, it's the two of you. I'll have an old peculiar with anybody. Well, I'm wondering. I'm 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 going to completely hijack the question and probably hijack this this possible session with you and Colin. God, I can't. Why am I saying calling him a body part? Anyways, um, it seems to me like it would be kind of cool to actually, if it's possible, expand this or do another separate sort of thing because uh, the the community around the podcast is growing, and I think it'd be kind of fun to have sort of a larger group hangout for coffee or beer or hmm. whatnot. A virtual, a virtual trip to the bar. Exactly. Gathering. Exactly. Well, we, yes, a virtual gathering. But yeah. you've got to have a beer. Yes. Yeah, well, I think we or did whiskey last time, or, actually. Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah, I had, a, I had a gin and tonic. And I, I think that that's a, that's, a, that's a very good suggestion. And I think that's something that we, we, have, we have touched upon. And I did actually say ages ago that we would do one in the autumn or the fall um, because we did the, at the back end of um, spring – uh, where we couldn't actually have our physical get together, uh, but we did it virtually, and we had—I uh, think we had about twenty-two people on the uh, the Google Meet. Um, mm-hmm. Those that could had a stable connection, at least, um, were able to enjoy that. And we had uh, two speakers: uh, we had Kate Miller Wilson, and we had Dave Shrimpton. Um, gave gave two like mini lectures. And then we had a Q and A session after, and that was a that was a, that was a really good um, session that we had there. So we we do need to do something like that again. Um, so yeah, I'll or we uh, should have a chat about that <laughs> and uh, decide who, who we're going to get and um, and then tell the world about it. Yeah, there we go. So I guess the the short answer then for 
colon, sorry, is one, these two fine gentlemen will absolutely have a beer with you, but also on a larger note for the rest of the community, let's get together and we'll figure something out. Let us know, I guess, by email, you know, if there's uh, some times that work best for you, considering we have sort of a worldwide audience. And if there's any preferences towards uh, subject matter you'd like to get guests on about or pepper people with questions with, and let's get something going. Yeah, Eric, you seem to be under the misapprehension that this is some kind of democracy that you're involved in here. Oh, I, I, I have no illusions. I am the person who push, who, uh, who pushes the, 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 the mop and the brush and whatnot. You two are in charge, but um, I'm just, you know. No, I didn't mean necessarily that. I meant that, that you'd want to complicate it by throwing it open to the whole community. <laughs> I don't think we'll ever do anything. To, Simon normally decides we just defer to him. <laughs> we'll, I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll come to some arrangement. Uh, and then the second email question we have is actually not for me at all it is from greg opst is it opst opst i'm gonna go with opst opst damn it greg opst uh who wrote in for jim jim have you ever published a book of your work or are there plans for a book or series of books in the future and would they be more instructional or monograph in their presentation thanks Greg Opst. Uh, a book of uh, instruction for carbon printing? No. I, I don't have any intention of, of publishing anything like that. There's a book out uh, by uh, Sandy King, Don Nelson, and John Lockhart, I believe, that is a carbon transfer manual that I highly recommend. You can get it on, on Google. And uh, I have a copy of it. And it's a contemporary guide to carbon printing. And it goes through, it's, carbon printing has evolved into uh, more of a digital workflow now when it comes to the negatives. Um, and I have my own opinions about that. But the, the one thing I, I really like is it opens it up to people who are not into big cameras like I am. Uh, to be able to take and... Uh, because of the way they like to work or physical disability or something, they can't carry around a big camera. They can go out, create a digital image, print a digital negative, and print an alternative processes. So the book is a lot towards how to make a digital negative, what you need to do, the history behind it, um, how you do everything. It's a very thorough instruction manual. I highly recommend it. And then in the back section, there's uh, images from several different artists who have contributed to it, and I'm in there, Vaughn Hutchins is in there, several other well-known, wonderful carbon printers are in there, both working in uh, film and in, in you know digital negative presentation. So I, I think uh, there's no need for me to do something like that. And it would be limited to what I know. I, I'm, I'm immersed in film. It's just how I work. I, 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 the digital world... I understand it. I know what all it's all about, but it's it's not me. I'll never I'll never go into into that end of things. Now, when it comes to books, yeah, I've published two books. Okay, and here's one of them. You guys can see this is this is a book called Survivors One, and this is the only book of its kind that's ever been printed in carbon transfer. Uh, research that I've done 
and in asking Mark Osterman and several other historians that I know, I asked them, is there ever been anything that you know of, a book that has been printed, not only prints, as you can see here, well, you guys can see, but the audience can't see, unfortunately, but in, in this book, this is an original carbon transfer print. This is nice. bound into the book. Now, more importantly, I'll turn to a page that's a little better example. This introduction was written by a good friend of mine, Matthew Blaze, down in Southern California. He knows me real well. For you guys, I don't know whether you can see this. I'm trying to hold it up. Can you see it all right? A little bit, yeah. I'm moving on. That's a carbon print. Oh, nice. That's a carbon transfer print. All so, right. Uh, this, this is a, a text. This is text. <laughs> the entire text in this book is a carbon transfer okay. print. This book has been printed completely underwater. <laughs> <laughs> how, many, how many copies of the book are there? Well, there's going to be 10, uh, 10 copies. Uh, mm. in, in three series tiers for pricing. They're, they're for, geared to the collector market. Yeah. yeah. This, this book will outlive all of us. Ten times over, because the entire book is printed in carbon. Now, no one else in the world has ever, to my knowledge, printed text in carbon transfer. Now, if in the development process, I take an artist's brush and I remove the pigment from each and every letter underwater. Now, there's a fine line between taking the letter off and keeping the letter on by how much you stipple the hot water on there to release the pigment that's in between the little E's and A's and I's and O's right. and keeping it on the page. Okay, so it's it's pretty pretty intense when you have a whole page of text like this. So this, this particular book, I have, uh, I believe, three editions already completed and a fourth one that I just need to uh, actually bind. Uh, and so uh, I, I do all the casework, the binding, uh, I do all the printing, I do everything. I build the clamshell case that it is housed in. It comes with a portfolio of two separate images that are suitable for framing with their certificates of authenticity and everything. So, How long does it take to print and produce the book by hand like that? Like every each, each each book individually, how much time does that individual book take? It's probably about at least three to four months. You know, now, now that's that's this is the small one. Okay, I, I the second book that I've published, um, self-published, is with original eight by twenty carbon transfer prints in it. It's too big to bring in here. <laughs> because the book the, the book closed is about 14 and a half inches tall by 26 inches wide so when you open it up it's 52 inches wide That's and it has original 8 by 20 carbon transfer prints in it and the original print text is printed in carbon transfer as well now nice. that was that was the most difficult carbon transfer prints I've ever made so you know when they ask about book publishing that's that I have a couple of other projects in mind, but I'm working on 
uh, on those, uh, you know, those projects. Um, and the first book goes back to what I had talked about earlier about my trip in Yosemite, mm-hmm. the Oaks, um, back in 2007. Uh, this book, uh, the Survivor's One book, is, a, is one day in my photographic life. I, I shot 12 sheets of 8x10 film, and eight of the images are in this book. And it's the single greatest photographic day of my life. To be able to walk a trail and come back with eight images. Um, and I, I, I must have walked probably two and a half, three miles. And I don't even remember how I got where I was going. And the images in the book are just absolutely stunning. And they just have a, an emotional impact to me that's beyond belief. And when I printed, I printed two uh, two, I was working on two editions at the same time. And when I had them completed, I put them on the counter in, at home. And my wife was, we were standing there. I was looking at them. I said, honey, I can't believe this is something I never thought I would ever be able to produce. And uh, I, I broke down. I, I lost it. I was in tears because it was one of those things that I just never thought I could do. When I started the, when I created the images, I knew I wanted to present it present it in a way that would do justice to uh, not only the trees, but, you know, the images that I had produced. And the only way was an original uh, book. So I learned how to bookbind. Uh, A gentleman named Sage Reynolds um, was uh, my instructor. And uh, that was through YouTube, by the way. I learned how to bookbind by watching videos on YouTube. Nice. So it was that was pretty incredible when I think about it because I I had no real idea how to do it, and I've got a couple people here on the West Coast in Washington here that I've worked with that have given me tips on uh, on how to do bookbinding and everything. But I was at a show. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Photo LA down in Los Angeles. Happens about every January. January, February of every year, I went down and shared a booth with another um, artist and uh, book publisher, uh, Craig Huber from Veritas Editions. We shared a booth and I had the book on display along with some original carbon prints. And there's a a gentleman, I forget his name right now, but he's the owner of 21st Editions which is the premier high-end book publisher. And he came over to the booth, and he was looking through my book. And he asked me, he said, did you, did you do this book? I said, yeah, I did everything myself, and blah, blah, blah. And he looked at it, and, and uh, he said, this is one of the finest books I've ever seen. And I told him what took place, and he said, this is just amazing. The binding, everything is just incredible. You do amazing work. I didn't know who he was at the time. And when he left, my associate said, that was so-and-so from 21st Editions. If he was saying that, he said, then you've, you hit a home run because he's, he's the benchmark we all try to aspire to. Right. Oh, that really, actually – Really proud. Um, well, well, two things then because actually – well, first off, just for the people in the audience, if they want to purchase one of those books, I saw they can go to your website and contact you. Yeah. 
Okay. Serious, serious people only. Though. Yes. Serious. Because no these aren't around. these aren't books that you're just going on Amazon to buy. Yeah. No. Because you yeah, can't the put a carbon, you, you won't do justice with any of those prints yeah. with some reproduction. Yeah, the books themselves are works of art, handmade. And just to give you a quick example, if you go on my website, we have, we have uh, my 8x10 prints are listed on the website for $1,000. Yeah. So do the math. There's eight prints in here. There's two loose. The binding, oh, let's do the math. That's, that's, that's how you can figure right. that one out. <laughs> and then but our final message they're not for the faint of heart but <laughs> yeah but they are they're one of a kind collector collector items so right. hopefully i'll sell one if not uh my kids will have some wonderful mementos when i'm exactly gone. um but actually as i say it dovetails into the final message which is less a question and more uh a statement i guess from michael wellman who actually is the gentleman uh, who suggested that we get you on in the first place. So he's a perfect bookend for this. Thank you, Michael. And he sent us a message saying, I was working in my darkroom today and listening to your podcast and greatest podcast when you got to one of my favorite parts of the show, Ask Eric. Oh, thanks, Michael. As I was working away, I heard Eric reading the letter I sent to you about Jim Fitzgerald. What a pleasant surprise. Glad that you put his name and webpage out there. He is certainly worthy of this attention. Carbon prints are amazing in part because they have depth to them. Thanks again, Michael Wellman. And thank you, Michael, for introducing us to Jim and his incredible work. And uh, thank you, Jim, for in turn agreeing to come on to this now three dog and one pony show. Um, <laughs> I, I'm having a blast, guys. I really invite me on. Yeah, well, awesome. it's it's been absolutely a, a pleasure to have you um, on here, Jim. Um, and um, this is a good a good time to direct uh, our listeners to uh, where people can find your work and uh, f- and follow you outside of this podcast. Well, the the website is Jim's carbonartphotography dot com. Um, I've got some recent video that was put up on there uh, that they you guys have been wonderful to share. Uh, and you can contact me through there. You can see prints, there's pricing, there's a little bit of history on there, and um, I'm on Facebook as well, and I've got uh, an Instagram, what the hell is the other one, Instagram, I think. I'm on there, I think, at Carbon Fitzgerald or Carbon Jim or something, hell, I don't know. You know, technology kind of... I'll find you and share the link, don't worry. Yeah, thank you very much. And and just a... A couple of additional things. Uh, yesterday, I finished up a segment uh, for the local PBS station, um, nice. uh, Oregon Public Broad- Broadcasting (OPB). Uh, they they're doing a little documentary uh, on me. We spent two days here in early in October, the fifth and sixth, uh, in my studio. Um, and going through the entire carbon transfer printing process step by step, except uh, we didn't show how I manufacture the, make the glop and make the tissue. But we did a, they did a very thorough shoot um, at the house, and then the next day we went out into the field, and they followed me out to a setup that I had, uh, had done previously uh, and made a print uh, so it's kind of a journey 
where I'm out in the field, do you see me photographing the image that's presented at the going to be presented at the end of the um, uh, end of the video? It's the actual print from the image that I took that day, and uh, and so we wrapped up the final segment here yesterday was uh, an interview uh, with me in a really cool warehouse studio environment uh kind of an old building it was really cold and earthy and it was it was a, a great environment and they they did a nice segment on the books that i produced and then also the cameras that i built um they they took some time to to do that so they'll it'll take some time to get that all edited and uh and the final product i'm, I'm guessing maybe out in the early spring uh, could be sooner but i'll certainly let everybody know that's that's going to be on the local public broadcasting station here. Uh, well, Jim, if you you can share that into the now you're a member of the large format photography podcast Facebook group, you can sh- be great if you can yeah. share that when it comes up. And also, feel free to drop in any pictures of your cameras, which we really didn't talk about. Some of those lenses we talked about, which oh sure, you know the the three element, the three focal length ones, stuff like that that our listeners. Um, and members of the Facebook group would be really interested to see those. Yeah, Simon, yeah. you got to do some things to wrap up? Yes, 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 I do. And uh, first one, very, very quick one, is um, we've actually had some donations since uh, Eric's been on the show, uh, which we thought that uh, donations had ended uh, since, uh, since he joined us. Sure, a pain to get rid of him. Yeah, and, um, and uh, so we need to say thank you to... Actually, I think this one came in just immediately after recording, but before it went out. And that's Steve Williamson, uh, who says, um, who donated to say, thank you uh, for your, this is for your location posting gear, digging your show. Thank you very much, Steve. And uh, yes, we we haven't actually bought that recorder yet, but that's going to happen. And then there's, uh, I think it's Calais Mether um, and um, Calais uh, wrote uh, thanks for a great show very inspiring greetings from finland thank you kelly nice. assume i've got you right um and then uh, most recently uh, heather oakless I've, i hope i've pronounced oh. it correctly um, and, and um yes and uh, yeah we we uh, we we shows, uh, really enjoy uh, hearing you uh, makes me smile thank you um heather and uh, yeah we, we did mention heather last week we should mention more people um, that could mm. be, this could be the, uh, the the way for for more donations if you do wish to help us out on the show um we're on coffee.com and then somehow you can find us under uh, large format photography podcast well apparently that's actually quite difficult but there you go so well done f- for those three people for for finding us there um now then, uh, Andrew, um, outside of this show, um, how can people keep up with all the things that you do? On Twitter and Instagram, I'm Warboys Snapper, and uh, snapper. I have a Snapper, yes, and uh, hanging out at the Facebook group. Most literally, most literally, yeah, I, I kind of live there. Yeah, he does. I, I hang my hat in the Facebook group, and then once every couple of weeks. Um, although we're on a, we've paused at show ninety nine for the time being till we sort a few things out with the lensless podcast. So you never know, ninety nine might be the last show ever, but I think we'll get round to doing no. some more eventually. 
and that, that's the point. We're on show 40 at the moment. And yeah. that we, we did say we'd do 20 shows a year. So who knows? That's it. We, that's it. Is, is, is that it for this year or should we, do, so, should yeah. we do more? No, no, that's enough. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Eric, outside of the show, where, where can people find you? Uh, running around Oakland like a lunatic or uh, E-R-I-K-H-M-A-T-H-Y is where I am on Instagram. That's where I am the most active. Excellent. And I'm on Twitter as Simon4. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic, which is also the name of my website if you stick co.uk on the end of that as well. Um, I keep saying I'm developing more things and I never get them out there. So hopefully by the next time, I'll have some exciting things that I'm actually making that you can buy and stuff like that. Um, Jim, Jim, it's been fantastic having you on again. Dude, awesome. Thank you. It's been it's been a lot of fun. I I've really enjoyed myself. It's uh, it's nice. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well, it's it's been absolutely brilliant and uh, educational and inspiring. So thank thank you very very much for, for sharing this time with us. I'm looking forward to seeing you doing it in camera. Let oh, me yeah. know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely that'll be really cool um okay so just fi- finally there our music is by um oh what's his name kevin mcleod and it's called two finger johnny um and it's uh, published by um there's, there's some gestures going on there from eric i bet you can't guess what was going on there um and um incompetech.com so um, that's it. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, this show and uh, we'll be back again soon. So goodbye. Bye. Later. Bye, everybody.